Welcome to The Brief with Nora Barrows-Friedman, Justin Poder, and me, John Elmer. On this episode, Uprising in America. The system only recognizes unrest and anything that makes it uncomfortable. And so our system is totally capable of politicizing and neutralizing our peaceful protests. But when you have this many people in the streets. People are losing their fear. Things have changed so quickly. I think there was already great discontent in the country. And people need to stay discontented. The United States is rocked by protests against police violence as hundreds of thousands march from coast to coast. We are joined from New York by Margaret Kimberly and from Boston by Benjamin Dixon. Hey, Nora. Hey, Justin. Hey, John. Hey, Justin. Hello. So uh, Big couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. There's this Twitter account I follow where he says, remember when the scariest thing in the world was the global pandemic? <laughs> yeah. yeah, things are happening fast. The protests have been absolutely amazing and ongoing, and it's really laid bare the police and the police state and all the apparatus that comes with that and the power structure and and how violence is meted out along racial and segregationist lines, how white supremacy interacts with the whole police state itself. It's becoming clear to people now. For me, you know, there was this incredible knot in my stomach for the past, like, I don't know, however many years, 20 or 25 or whatever. And like, especially with the last round of murders and protests, uh, you know, in Ferguson and and Eric Garner and Mike Brown, and you watch these videos, Sandra Bland. And I just, I was sure this was just going to be another one of those. And so for me, there's like, it's a really, I'm, I'm really glad to see that people didn't let this go like that. Did they ever? Holy smokes. Shall we get started? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the briefing. So the events of the past two weeks began with the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis over a $20 bill. The officer put his knee on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes, slowly suffocating him to death. The video of that almost immediately sparked protests in Minneapolis, and the police officers involved, the first response by the police was to fire the officers involved, but that didn't quell the protests. The protests began to spread, and within two days, the demonstrations were largely coast-to-coast, 150-plus cities demonstrations. And the weekend, the first weekend after the killing of George Floyd was kind of the weekend of fire. We had the third precinct, the precinct that the officer was involved with in Minneapolis, burned by protesters. And when that sacking of the precinct happened, the police literally fled the premises under duress from protesters. Their vehicles, videos showed their police vehicles bursting through the gate of the precinct. And some officers in vehicles, some officers on foot, literally running with stones being thrown at them by protesters. It was really a remarkable sight that I think it's difficult to find in American history a parallel of a police station being sacked by popular protests and the officers literally running out the back door as it's happening. A lot of the protests that people cite historically, you know, like the Watts riots or the L.A. riots, like those burnings, uh, I mean, the L.A. riots was really significant in the way the police stood down. So the confrontation didn't target the police. And that's one of the 
unprecedented aspects of these demonstrations. In any case, by the first weekend, Trump was hiding in a bunker. The lights in the White House were off because of the demonstrations that were happening out front of the White House. The Washington Post described the use of a helicopter to buzz protesters. One helicopter buzzed protesters from a height level with three and four story buildings in the Chinatown area ripping limbs away. Rotor wash hurled glass from broken windows like shrapnel. Protesters and a few remaining journalists scattered to the sides of the street to seek shelter beneath awnings or went sprinting away shouting, I can't see anything. I can't hear anything. That was from the Washington Post, who had journalists on the scene, which is also one of the interesting things about this, because the focus on these demos, CNN had correspondents in every city out on the streets. Many of them looked like for the first time and were in just sort of awe at the violence. And a lot of the sort of narrative has turned in part because the media was subjected to the same violence that that the black community in the United States faces all the time. But it's sort of like the smashing of myths a little bit happening with this. So the police responded to these demonstrations against police brutality, quite notably, with more brutality attacking, you know, youth and elderly, attacking protesters who didn't have anything to do with it, while on the other hand, getting their ass handed to them all the time, like in city after city, tactical failures by the police, tactical successes by protesters, ultimately has led to the charging of police killing of black people, which included uh, Ahmed Arbery in Georgia, in effect, as an attempt to quell the protests, but almost as a safety measure for the police officers involved. People were staking out their houses, and there was a a sense of vigilante justice that was coming. And whether those charges, you know, it's very difficult, as we've seen sort of over and over again, it's very difficult to get charges to stick in these cases of police brutality. But perhaps the juries in the next round of them will be different than the previous rounds, like the Rodney King riots actually were a response to the acquittal of the police officers. So there's still a lot of story to be told in this. As of last weekend, there had been more than 10,000 arrests throughout the United States. And the movement against police brutality has turned into an international movement, in some ways an unprecedented international movement. And there's been some really some highlights that uh, we'll point to, like the demonstration in Bristol on the weekend where something like a 15-year battle to remove a slave trader statue in the harbor was dealt with by direct action as people tore down the statue and literally dumped it into the harbor, which led to a wonderful tweet that somebody sent out showing the Google Maps of the the statue relocated into the middle of the harbor, which is a very 2020 way to show uh, the results of that action. But really, you know, it's difficult to, in a briefing, to cover what has happened in these past two weeks, because the number of stories, and the number of victories, things that people didn't ever expect to have happen. But very basic things like accountability of police, like the fact that they're immune from charges has been a very important pillar of their impunity, right? Like they they know that they band together, the thin blue line or whatever, that they, they all come together, circle the wagons at the right moment. 
But it's difficult to see how that can happen now that we've had these pretty remarkable photos of Biden kneeling in the church and Pelosi and congressional Democrats kneeling at Capitol Hill. These images are going to be, I think, trotted out again if these charges against cops are dropped or are found not guilty in some way. Because people have seen these videos, and the videos are remarkable. The first attempt by the Minneapolis coroner's office to say that George Floyd died from something other than a knee on his neck for nine minutes is the sort of historical impunity. That's the way that it functions. The system functions in a comprehensive nature. It's not just the police versus everybody else. It's the way the system functions intertwined that is actually starting to come undone. So... There's been tallies kept of the successes, which we'll put in the briefing notes on our website at thebriefpodcast.com. But they include highlights like the Minneapolis school board ending their contract with the police. You know, the role of the police in the high schools in America is a really stark introduction to being black in America when basic teenage confrontations in a high school are treated like an offense on the street, like an assault on the street. People are criminalized from their classroom on out. In New York, there was the the buses refusing to drive prisoners, the suspension of no-knock warrants in Kentucky after the Breonna Taylor Transit unions in Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, D.C., and Boston refusing to transport prisoners. Slave-owning statues dumped in Richmond, Virginia, and Birmingham, Montgomery, Alexandria, Virginia, and Baltimore. These events that would normally, under normal circumstances, be something that we talked about singularly, are now so wrapped up in a movement that I think this is probably not going to be our only episode on America's uprising. Hopefully not. You said it a lot of it in the briefing, John, but I really think this is a really big deal and it's a really big moment. I think we could see a lot of positive things coming from this. I'm so proud of my comrades in the struggle. Yeah. I'm I'm so fearful also of like yeah. what the blowback is going to be when they can't quell these protests. We were talking about just a few days ago, Trump and Senator Tom Cotton trying to mobilize the U.S. military forces to crush the protesters on the streets of the U.S. And, and um, you know, we know how U.S. imperial forces work all over the world, and, and they wanted to, to bring that violence and, and war onto the streets of Baltimore and, and Minneapolis and Oakland and and New York. So I worry also after the Ferguson uprising, there were four to six of these activists that were just murdered, like assassinated. Yeah, yeah they were found dead in mysterious in cars, circumstances. Burned yeah. cars, yeah. evidence destroyed. I also worry about like what happens if yeah. the protests are quelled or like in a lull afterwards is when they do that kind of repression. So it kind of feels like we're in almost uncharted territory here. We have the absolute stripping bare of the machinations of the police state. We see on video, you know, riot cops shoving a 75-year-old Catholic worker activist to the ground. He's bleeding from his head and his ears, and you see the riot cops just walk all and over there's him. There's like 100 of them. There's 100 of them. Yeah, and this is happening all the time. And this is nothing new for the black community here in the U.S., they have been yelling this for centuries <laughs> that this is how 
the state treats them. And finally, when when white people are given the same treatment on video, it marks a, a certain moment in time, I guess, for for the yeah, U.S. A certain lack of inhibition by the police, right? Like at this at this point. But isn't there a certain element of calling in the National Guard that is a statement of failure of the police? Absolutely. Like you can't, they're, they're... Absolutely. Yeah. It's a failure. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. The police are not good at anything, right? Like they're, right. they're stated, they're <laughs> right. like every single one of their stated jobs they can't do. Earlier today on June 9th, the cynically named, you can't make this up because it's America, the Benevolent Association of the City of New York, which it's a group that represents tens of thousands of New York City uh, active and retired police officers. They are the personification of the whole Blue Lives Matter ideology. They make sure that cops are as immune as possible to any sort of investigation, inquiry, accountability, anything. So Mike O'Mara of the Benevolent Association of the City of New York was speaking today representing tens of thousands of cops. Stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. That's what we're here today to say. We've been left out of the conversation. We've been vilified. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Trying to make us embarrassed of our profession. You better love us or we're going to shoot you dead. You better, you better respect us or, or we'll, we'll kick your door down and, and smash everything in your house. There's that basic psychological term of projection, right? Like, Yeah, you couldn't parody you can't. that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> he can't believe it. it he, can't believe, he can't believe people are upset. I mean, my jaw was on the table watching that today. These are the same cops who just, you know, in the last two weeks have been filmed assaulting, beating, killing and shoving protesters. Driving into them. It's just it's it's stunning. Anyway, I did speak with Benjamin Dixon, who's a fantastic commentator political analyst, and he is the host of The Benjamin Dixon Show, which is a fantastic podcast. And and, um, and which appears like every day. Yeah, he's... I think there's a Benjamin Dixon Show every day. He's relentless. It's it's fantastic. Prolific. So we're really glad that, that he agreed to come on The Brief. He is now a friend of The Brief. And uh, let's go to that interview. Benjamin Dixon, you're someone who carefully tracks the machinations of police violence and state terrorism against black people. What's going through your mind now? Uh, How are you feeling as this insurgency continues on the streets across the country and across the world while cops kill people and then pretend that they're the victims here? Yeah, I I think it's the absurdity of it all that's on my mind with the press conference, the police officers coming out crying about being treated like thugs and treated like animals and demanding respect rather than being an institution that earned respect. I am uh, disappointed in how absurd our society really is. 
But I'm also rather excited about the fact that the narrative has shifted. They did their best to control the narrative in the first week, calling everything looting and rioting. And I have a different opinion as in regards to the looting and rioting. But I do recognize that that's usually a standard tactic that is used to control the narrative. They lost that narrative. And then they moved to Antifa. They lost that narrative. Then Donald Trump tried to declare him terrorist. They lost that narrative. Then he tried to bring down the entire military dictatorship. He obviously lost that narrative. And now they're on the defense because we had two weeks of seeing nothing but nonstop footage of police brutalizing people like, you know, like we are familiar with in the black community. I don't think Americans believe that that happened. And and so now they're dealing with the ramifications of two weeks of nonstop footage of them brutalizing the press, uh, b- brutalizing middle aged white women. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really just lost their mind in the last two weeks. Yeah. And I want to go back to that cop press conference. They were yelling, uh, you know, accusing public officials of trying to make police, quote, walk away and abandon people. Who is this message for? What's the point of this kind of tone that these cops in New York were taking today? You know, were they trying to chide people into consent or are they trying to fire up the right wing Blue Lives Matter MAGA heads into enacting more violence on protesters in the streets? They, they're clearly not trying to win us over with this, right? <laughs> they're clearly right. <laughs> trying to rile up their base. You know, in addition to riling up their base, they're trying to maybe shave off some of the people who are on the fence. There are a lot of opinions that are being shifted this week. There are a lot of people who saw videos for themselves and said, this is enough. This is out of control. And so I think what they're trying to do now is to play the victim, which conservatives are really great at playing the victim in this country, but not really cops. Cops yeah. aren't really good at playing the victim because he didn't really sell this. He really sold his arrogance here. And I think anyone who is like taking a measured look at this and and, and just kind of judging it in good faith, a person who talks like this isn't really sincere or sorry. They're really trying to scare you into submission. It's really kind of a gaslighting of the highest order. And it's also yeah. uh, something that's really, I, I've seen a lot in civil relationships. So I, I think it's going to backfire in terms of anyone they thought that they can, you know, shave off of the edges, people who are on the fence, I think people will see this and they will come to our side of the equation. But it's definitely going to fire up their base who has no regard for any good faith engagement. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the tactics that people in these uprisings have used so far and how the idea of abolition has been forced into the mainstream discourse? You know, it's taken burning down a police station and having swells of rebellions just to get some modicum of recognition about the nature of the police state. I think it's critical for us to understand that America, whether it wants to admit it or not, only recognizes violent protest. Now, they see what's going on now. I I think we've had a good week since there's been anything burned or any type of riot. We've had a week of peaceful protests that have been under attack by the police state as if it was a violent protest. And this is where they lost the narrative. Those cops were so ready to just bash some heads. They didn't realize that they might have been winning the streets, but they were losing the narrative in the nation. But to your question as to the tactics, it's condemning of America for us to have to speak out violently and to, quote, quote, riot or whatever the case may be, because for so many years, black people have peacefully protested this. I mean, they, they had a problem with Colin Kaepernick taking the knee. Right. So if you had a problem with Colin, now you want to take now all these cops are taking the knee for a photo op. No, 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 no. No, you should have paid attention when we because because what it is, is the system only recognizes unrest and anything that makes it uncomfortable. And so our system is totally capable of politicizing and neutralizing our peaceful protests. But when you have this many people in the streets, 
right? And you have some people who are willing to commit acts of violence to bring the attention to it. And you properly put that in context. I don't condemn, I don't condemn the violence. I, I don't condemn, I, my line is always drawn as I don't want anyone killed, right? I don't want anyone to be murdered out here. I, you know, I know in the LA riots, quite a few people were killed and that's my personal morality where I draw the line. However, you ignored our silent protests. You ignored our peaceful protests. And you're only paying attention now that we burned some building down. Well, shame on you for being that type of barbarian, that that's the only thing that you could recognize, America. You recently said on your great show, The Benjamin Dixon Show, that this is just more proof, as if we didn't have centuries of proof already, that this is how the agents yeah. of the state, the police, defend their power and maintain the consent of the governed. That if anyone attempts to question this consent, that they must reassert this dominance over communities using brute force, that they believe the streets are theirs and they will kill and injure anyone they want to keep that power. We know that the police have never been about keeping people safe. Now yeah. that that illusion is finally being breached, yeah. what does it look like? Can you talk about that a bit? I think the unexpected victory in this minor revolution, because it is a revolution. It's not the revolution that everyone wanted or, or well, not everyone wanted, because I, I, I don't want violent revolution. You know, I want my kids to grow up in some security and peace. But it is a revolution, a minor revolution. And I think the hidden victory in it that we didn't expect was a change in the minds of the of the general public, because what they've seen is the full display of what's underneath the lies that we tell ourselves about America underneath the freedom of the press is the fact that the police will smash a cameraman in the face and shoot a journalist with tear gas and rubber bullets and tell them they don't care that you're with the press. Right. That's jarring when you have been propagandized as effectively as every single American has been. If you grew up in this country and you went through the public school system and you said the Pledge of Allegiance as many times as I did and, and you know the preamble to the, uh, to the Constitution is by heart like I do, then you really believe this stuff. <laughs> you really believe that we had a freedom of the press. And so when you see it being completely uh, disrespected and attacked by the people who are there to protect and serve, that's jarring. The second thing is not just the press, you saw the police state come down on white people, right? Middle class, middle age, white women. I will never forget the woman in Seattle who was under attack you know, with her pink bicycle hat on. You know, she was fighting for her dignity. She was fighting for, for her womanhood, for her own personal strength. And those cowards crushed it out of her. And I think that's a jarring image for people who may never have considered that what black folks have been telling you all along <laughs> was true. And, and it's, it's OK. I can eat that. I don't have to. You know, I'm not going to be tit for tat and say I told you so. But we told you so. Right. And, and now you see that that barbarity that has been in the black community for so long was never going to stay in the black community. It was always going to spill over. And, and I think that is the victory. The victory is now we look at police with the eye of suspicion and we're going to keep pressing. We're going to keep sharing these videos. We're going to make sure that we saturate the culture with the true images of the police state. Right. And you mentioned the, you know, these like performances by cops now taking a knee. The, yeah. the, the, the establishment, the ruling class is terrified because this this system is being protested. We yeah. saw their counterparts in the Democratic Party leadership taking a knee while wearing kente cloth, for example, <laughs> with, you know, all the confidence of the Democrats, which is like, you know, basically there, that should do it. Right. Like, that's what black people are calling for and have been calling for for so many years. <laughs> 
Right. Should people be showing mercy to these politicians? Like, what's your take on this this performative just garbage? No, no mercy. <laughs> no, no, none, none whatsoever. <laughs> because because you have to understand, like, these are Democratic mayors. New York is run by Democrats. Right. And so the police state has been executed with the consent at a minimum, right? Even if you turn a blind eye, you're still consenting and you're complicit. So Bill de Blasio in New York, the mayor in uh, the city I used to live in, in Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, all the crackdown that we saw came from politicians, most of whom were Democrats. And to see the fecklessness with which the Democratic leadership in this country, from Nancy Pelosi to Chuck Schumer all the way down, I mean, we really did not see any firm opposition to Donald Trump's attempt to create a military dictatorship, right? That was a moment in history that everyone with any modicum of power should have drew the line in the said and say, absolutely not. Right. But instead of doing that, what did uh, Nancy Pelosi do? She came out the next day and tried to out evangelical Donald Trump with her own Bible. And so I don't think we should have any mercy on any of these politicians. Every single Democratic mayor and governor who presided over this brutal crackdown of the police state, they need to be voted out of out of office just as much as Donald Trump needs to be voted out of office. And I can't tell you and I can't express how much it is imperative that we get rid of Donald Trump. So that's how I feel about the Democratic mayors who signed off on this crackdown. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about that that terrifying push by Trump and Senator yeah. Tom Cotton to place military troops in U.S. streets to crush the protests w- without a peep from from the so-called opposition or the hashtag resistance in Congress. Of course, if anyone's against that, and they should, of course, be against the U.S. military in the streets, they should be against the U.S. military in anyone's streets, in any country, because this is what U.S. imperialist yes. forces have been doing all along. This is who they are. How can we translate what we see in the streets and these plans by these authoritarians into a broader anti-war, anti-imperialist worldview? Yeah, I, I love that question. I absolutely love that question because it has, we have to connect the humanity of the people in our streets with the humanity of people anywhere across this globe. They are human just like we are. They have desires and hopes and dreams and aspirations just like we do. And when I felt the pain of that white woman in Seattle being crushed by the police into submission, I feel that same empathy. I feel that same pain when we drop bombs and from our drones in the Middle East and so in, in the global south. And so I think it's, it's really imperative that we start to humanize everyone we have to get rid of this 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 really insidious thing that we do in America that we really only feel pain in America when it's someone from our world order. You know, if there's someone from France who got killed because of some violence, then we grieve. But if it's someone from the global South, primarily brown and black countries, we feel nothing. And that's because we have limited our empathy to being a byproduct of American imperialism. And and we have to shed that. And I think the best way to do that is to is to take this moment and push just a little bit further. It may be more to ask than a lot of people are, are, are able to handle at this point, because a lot of people are just now coming to terms with the fact that the police state brutalizes the black community in ways that they never wanted to admit. So if we can get them to take that admission, that's a win. But push one step further and say, now, 
This is the police state that we export across the globe. And so if you can identify with the pain of the black community now in the same fashion, you should be able to identify with people on whose houses we drop bombs from our drones from thousands of miles away playing a video game in the CIA headquarters in Langley. Right. So we have to be able to ask more of us. In, in terms of our empathy and, and, and to and to extend who we see as human, because if we can feel for a person here in the United States and what the police did here, then we absolutely should be able to feel the same thing as a result of, of American imperialism. What's your prediction? We're living in quite a time where one week yeah. to the next is we're, we're talking about a completely different world. We're going to win. That's my prediction. We still can feel a sense of empathy for other people. And I think that that's why those police officers had to come out, because they lost that. They lost that default by default view police officers as noble. They lost that this week because they betrayed it. And we saw it with our own eyes. And so what happened was people of good faith, which I believe there are far more of us than there are of them, that they saw what happened and they changed their mind. And now they're scrambling, trying to figure out how to get that sense of nobility back in the public consciousness. They can't get it. It's gone. And we're going to make sure that it stays gone because we had to reveal who they were. And I think if we continue on this path of tapping into everyone's humanity and everyone's ability to empathize and to have empathy, then in the long run, we're going to win. Unfortunately, that that means that some people had to go out and, and get, you know, one protester lost an eye. Another protester, a couple of protesters were killed. We don't even know the total damage in terms of COVID-19. Right. I am grieving for every single person that laid their life on the line out there, every family that's going to lose a loved one because they went and protested. So this is not a this is not a, a cheap victory. This this came at great expense. Benjamin Dixon, thank you so much for your work and for being with us on The Brief. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You're listening to The Brief with John, Justin and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now back to the brief. Benjamin Dixon's a fire tweeter. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Indis- People want to check out his Twitter feed. Indispensable tweeter. So speaking of indispensable, Margaret Kimberly, uh, who's the author of Presidential, Black America and the Presidents, the outfit that Margaret works for, the Black Agenda Report, she's an editor and senior columnist there, that is indispensable. If you are ever, if you're ever having a moment of, <laughs> of, uh, of hope and change, you know, if you're ever feeling that, bur- yeah. you know, that nostalgia, burn, nostalgia that for the Obama administration, for the Democratic yeah. Party, and right. think maybe we could just vote our way to a better world. Check out the Black Agenda report, and uh, they'll fix that. They'll fix that up for you real quick. So, do you want to go to Margaret? Yeah, let's do it. I am here with Margaret Kimberly, a columnist and senior editor at the Black Agenda Report, which is highly recommended. Also the host of Black Agenda Radio. Margaret's also the author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, a new book just come out this year that goes through every single U.S. president and their record with Black America. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. We are talking in the middle of immense rebellion in the United States against police violence, the murder of 
George Floyd sparked a huge resistance to the way the police have been murdering Black people since their inception, really, in the U.S. But what I wanted to ask you, because the Black Agenda Report has this incredible analysis capacity. So I wanted to talk to you about what do you think the best case scenario is? If we come out of this moment with some tangible changes, what do you think those changes could be? There's several things I would like to see. One, I would like to see progressives finally leave the Democratic Party. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Mayor of Washington, D.C., she um, got a lot of credit for painting the words Black Lives Matter in the street leading to the White House. But she has said nothing about the police violence that was meted out against people. It's a, a cover for all the failures of the Democratic Party. We had other politicians at Black Agenda Report. We call them the Black misleadership class, the Black political class who have actually told people not to protest. The mayor of Atlanta, that was remarkable. The don't protest. People like Susan Rice and, and Mark Morial of the Urban League have said Russia is responsible for stirring up trouble. Everything except, they've said everything except acknowledging police violence, the connections with the mass incarceration system, the constant violation of human rights. They talk about everything else. And then they even say, well, you just have to vote. Well, if voting got rid of police violence, there wouldn't be any police violence anymore. I mean, that's just a lie. I live in New York City, so our, our supposedly liberal mayor, Bill de Blasio, basically pretended, I mean, the violence during the demonstrations here were all carried out by the police. But he didn't say anything about it. If anybody asked him, he was defensive or he would say, no, I didn't see that. Something on camera that everybody, in fact, saw. So that's something. And I think also Bernie Sanders' withdrawal, his capitulation, has given energy to this movement. His supporters are all dressed up with no place to go. And people wanted and expected to be able to have an impact only to be tossed under the bus again. Whenever I'm feeling like I'm being a little bit seduced by Sanders, I always go to the Black Agenda Report because you guys have been very strong. Like you use the word sheepdogging, yes, right? Yes, our, um, one of our late co-founders, Bruce Dixon, he was one of those who coined that, that term sheepdog. And back in 2015, not even 2016, he predicted <laughs> what Bernie would do in 2016. Wow. And, and Bruce passed last year. He still knew it was going to happen in 2020. So we, you know, some of us were, I was, I'm green now. I haven't been a Democrat for some years now. I still was hoping that he would stay in and put up a fight. Black people were used, especially cynically, and uh, some of the people I referred to were part of this, which ended with Joe Biden being foisted on us, telling black people to vote against their own interests because, well, you may want Medicare for all, but white people won't vote for him. So you'll be putting Trump back in. Um, so that's one of the things I would like to see. Progressives need to leave the Democratic Party once and for all. And that, you know, there's going to be a lot of debate about what that means. There are various formations. People are joining. It's, it's interesting to me how things have changed so quickly People are losing their fear. I think that's, it's the result of what I talked about, the rigged primary, then the COVID pandemic, 
which led to even worse economic problems for millions of people, more than 30 million newly unemployed people, to being angry about George Floyd's murder, I think there was already great discontent in the country. And people need to stay discontented and not be lulled into, not to think only about this case. Uh, And so, yes, I want the cops to go to jail who killed him, uh, Mm -hmm. George Floyd. But I, we need to make connections with uh, some of the other things I referred to. And it already started. It was interesting to me that things changed so quickly. They thought at first if they fired the cops right away, that would quiet people down. And it didn't. So then they finally, and I believe burning that police precinct was key in getting them arrest um, the main killer cop. So they thought, well, we can just arrest him. Then people were like, no, we want them all arrested. And we don't like the charges that you filed anyway. So they increased the charges against him. And people are still marching. So it is bigger and broader than this one case. And that is a good thing. And I I hope that all of the discontent that people see the need to to have an organized mass movement. It's been a long time. It's been some decades since there were grassroots organizations that really impacted politics in the country. The spontaneity has been has been good, but you can't live on that. So uh, I'm hoping to see some new formations arise, like Black Alliance for Peace, who I'm affiliated with, who have made demands for the United Nations to investigate human rights abuses in the U.S., Uh, who have a campaign, no compromise, no retreat, stop the war on black African people in the U.S. and abroad. We broaden the discussion and that we encourage people to be organized throughout the country on all of these issues. And COVID-19 killing more than 100,000 people, black people being uh, disproportionate victims, All of these things are tied to a failing state that doesn't meet the needs of its people and practices violence around the world. So I am hoping that all of these issues are addressed. You've actually written a book about all of the presidents. So is, you know, to what extent is Trump even an anomaly in terms of his racism against Black America? He isn't an anomaly. He is not this outlier He's painted as being, he's an outlier in his persona more than anything. He's not the first president to make appeals to racism. You know, in my book, I, as you point out, I, I have 45 essays, one for each president. So uh, anti-Black racism is foundational to the country. The father of the country, George Washington, was a major slaveholder. He and his wife owned more than 300 people. Ten of the first 12 presidents were slaveholders. Then we had, uh, after I'm, I'm rushing history a bit here, slavery ended because of a war and the president, Abraham Lincoln, we're told was the great liberator. His solution to American racism was to get rid of black people, to send black people out of the country. He never stopped talking about that. Uh, as late as a week or so before he was assassinated, he was talking about it. He kept dragging his feet on the Emancipation Proclamation because he wanted it to be tied to a colonization scheme. Then we have nearly 100 years of of Jim Crow, and the people, again, in the Civil War, it was the enslaved themselves who rose up, who joined the Union Army, who went to Union lines, who pushed Lincoln to make it a war against slavery. 
it was black people taking to the streets in the 50s and the 60s and pushing Lyndon Johnson. Even when these presidents do the right thing, it's because they're being pushed to do it. In modern history, Ronald Reagan made very blatant appeals to racism. Sometimes it was with code words like Nixon, law and order. Welfare queen or whatever. Welfare right? queen, that was Reagan making appeals to for states' rights in Mississippi like Reagan. Jimmy Carter, school busing was a hot issue at the time. Making comments about alien presence in certain neighborhoods. Bill Clinton with uh, the uh, sister soldier moment. Obama, let's not forget Obama. What did he do when we first, the Black Lives Matter organization and movement came to life in his presidency? What did he do about police violence? Nothing. I'll never forget Obama going to um, Michigan and drinking the water at that press conference. Yes, that was... saying, well, that's fine for me. And then everybody's shocked that Hillary Clinton couldn't get 10,000 more votes in Michigan. Trump's victory is entirely the fault of the Democratic Party. You know, the presidency, there is a Justice Department. It has a civil rights division. Obama could have prosecuted the cop who killed Eric Garner and all the other people whose uh, deaths we witnessed. But he didn't want to do it. He also passed out to uh, white sensibilities. What do you think of that argument that they will make, which is that they don't actually have the power? Like, I've heard a lot about, like, police, for example. The police are so powerful that the mayors and elected officials are afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Or Obama couldn't have done those things because he didn't have the power. Like, what do you what do you think of that? If anybody has the power, it's the federal government. And if uh, uh, local governments don't do their job, then the Justice Department can step in. They can prosecute all of these cases. I think there were two police prosecutions when Obama was president. By the way, the police kill three people every day in this country. It's a thousand people a year. About a third of them are black. And the conviction rate is approximately zero. And anybody else who's prosecuted in this country is found guilty. You know, prosecutors, I think it's it's funny when prosecutors brag about their conviction rate. I win 99% of my cases. Well, all of them do. System is stacked yeah. in their favor. That's nothing, you know, you'd be a pretty crappy prosecutor if you didn't get everybody convicted. But the federal government should be the prosecutor of last result. But there need to be special prosecutors just for police. That needs to happen in every state, and the federal government can do it. And what Trump Trump's response is no worse than Obama's, not no worse at all. That's another reason to ditch the Democratic Party. And look at who they foisted upon their voters, the Democratic Party establishment. Joe Biden, who's a train wreck for a variety of reasons. <laughs> uh, no, but he uh, he went on he went on Charlemagne the God and explained that black people love him. And he, and he went to and he went and took a knee. Remember in the church? That was the same day that Trump, you know, was waving a Bible around upside down. Upside they all just went to church on the same day. They just yes, I know. Went stood outside the church with an upside down Bible and tear gas people beforehand. But Biden, in this awful speech, it was very odd. He went on this rant about the police can shoot people in the legs and not kill them. They can learn to shoot people in the legs and not in the heart. I, I, it was it was really offensive. And to, as far as I'm concerned, aside from the not tear gassing people, it was no less offensive than anything Trump said. But this is the person they're trying to herd people back into sheepdog, as we just discussed, people back into the Democratic Party. 
I always say the Democrats depend on the black vote, but wish they didn't. The protests have brought discussion and demands to the table that I never thought I would ever see. Like, there are so many places that are talking about defunding police. In Minneapolis, the city council is talking about disbanding the police. Abolition is being discussed. What do you think of that? Like, We have to be careful, though. Defunding the police, it sounds like a radical demand, but they can easily use sleight of hand with money. So they can claim they, well, we took money away from the police, but they can hire private police. This is something not to be trusted. We need to talk about community control of the police. We need police forces that are answerable to the public, not these BS civilian complaint review boards that don't have any power. Community control of the police should include the power to hire, to fire, subpoena power, all of these things so that we don't, um, especially black people, live under an occupying army. So I would caution people against the defunding proposal. I think it's great that people are actually talking about police abolition. We could get rid of the police. You know, here in New York last, uh, maybe it's two years ago, de Blasio got into a spat with the police union. So cops called out sick for several days. And we essentially didn't have a, a police department. And it was fine. Now, in the 1970s, when they did that study that discovered police have no effect on crime rates or public perceptions of safety, and then they quickly buried that, the New York uh, did a almost like a controlled experiment to prove yeah, that was they true. Did. They did. So I'm like, well, what did they do? What do people, George Floyd was arrested for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. That's the kind of thing they respond to. It's usually not a violent crime. So I would say if we're going to talk about changing the police, first of all, they don't need guns. They need to be restricted in what they do and don't respond to what they can and can't make arrests for. There has to be more public control over their activities. And uh, I think it's great that people are talking about this at all. And I think the way they responded to the rebellion with more violence, all the violence here in New York was created by the police. It was really like they wanted to show how brutal and powerful and how much impunity they have. They're just like a gang. They were stealing people's bikes. For some reason, they focused on bicycles here in New York. They were taking any pro... Some bystanders, anybody within a block of a demonstration who had a bike, they'd snatch their bicycles. They they arrested the legal observers from uh, the National Lawyers Guild. They attacked the press physically attacked. People were tear gassed and shot with rubber bullets. But they are losing their fear because people still keep coming out even after all of that, right? I I think it's a couple of things. I think it's a, a discontent I was talking about earlier. I also think the fact that so many people are not working either unemployed or working remotely. People just had the ability to keep responding. And uh, they weren't tied to going to a job in order to participate. So I think this confluence of events built this movement. I don't want to talk about it as something that's going to end. This should be, I hope this is the beginning for talking about the police, for talking about uh, politics, for uh, all, all sorts of things. I remember I was appalled when I first started hearing about people who were newly unemployed who couldn't access their unemployment insurance. That states took weeks and months to get people the money they earned. 
So when you do things like that, when it's so clear that the system is in, the fact that COVID-19 got as bad as it did is because the United States, which we're always calling advanced or something, we need to stop that, didn't have a, a testing mechanism. They devised their own test and messed it up. And the healthcare system is underfunded. It's this patchwork of for-profit health insurance companies and hospital systems. And uh, the end result was the spread of a disease that got out of control. When it comes to the police, they come out with every shiny new piece of hardware that yes, they you do. can imagine. And uh, so and some of it is uh, surplus Defense Department equipment, the 1033 program, where, you know, every product in the country can have, get armored vehicles. And this is something Democrats vote for, too, including the Congressional Black Caucus. All of these things are tied together. And um, I think it's wonderful that people around the world have responded. I mean, to see thousands of people in Paris and London and all over the world. Yeah, and in, in London, they're pulling down all the uh, slave traders' statues and That's stuff. That's wonderful. And they're finally talking about King Leopold and his uh, genocide against the Congo. People are splashing red paint on his statues. And this is um, a wonderful thing to see the international connection that creates so much suffering around the world. So this is all to the good. This should not end. This should continue, but continue in an organized way so that we can come up with some really meaningful change for ourselves. Margaret Kimberly, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Whew. Yeah. So um, it doesn't sound like... So the Democrats are not the solution. No, they never have been, here. and they never will be. <laughs> no. And this is a historical thing. So she goes through every... Every president. Every president. Yeah, her book goes That's through quite every a, president. One I love that. President. So she said some interesting things that, uh, are, you know, to understand for the history, I think Nora talked about it last episode a little bit, but the history sort of of, of how policing in America came to be, right? She talks about 10 of the first 12 presidents of the United States being slave owners and the switch that Nora talked about last episode, the police being essentially a racial police, making it safe for whites to live amongst the slaves that they brought to America is really the beginning of the policing in America ethos. Well, and they were slave yeah, catchers it's, too. Right. If, it is, if, it's one if that's, this, you know, if, if enslaved people ran for their freedom, the police would be called in to bring them back. It was a direct and passes. Right. Show me your papers. Yeah. What are you doing? If you you could go to and from church, but that's it, yeah. right? If you're going anywhere, you want, they have to you have to justify it to the police. If you are seeing anyone, you have to justify it to the police. That's what it's about. So, it, or you'll be stop and frisked, like, right? Yeah. When they say police exist to protect property, you got to remember right. that until about 150 years ago, that property also included people. Another book that we should definitely recommend to our readers, besides Margaret's book, is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, who's a civil rights lawyer. Yeah, um, and she talks about the direct of lineage yeah. of slavery to the U.S. prison system and policing system. It's something that every high school kid in this country should read, but uh, <laughs> hopefully that'll be part of the revolution as well. Well, when you look at these things, like the way that these demonstrations have sort of permeated the culture like is it possible to imagine that these school teachers that are you know 
tweeting out black squares or reading lists or black businesses that you should frequent. Like, is this a turning point that's going to introduce in the school system these teachers when they go back? if we ever go back, <laughs> that they'll introduce this kind of stuff when the next bill is, you know, put in front of Pelosi and Biden and these kneeling with their fist in the air politicians. Like, are they going to have the same ability to be so cravenly cynical as they have up till this point? The stakes are not high for them. You know, like Nancy Pelosi will keep her $150 million fortune until the revolution is appropriates it. Nancy yes. Pelosi is yes. Yes. She has nothing to gain by listening that to the cream, people. That ice cream in the freezer was worth a little bit more than I <laughs> thought. She has like bedazzled uh, face masks now because that's, you know, hashtag resistance. I think that in pockets like where I'm in, the, the, the you know, progressive Bay Area, there are wonderful, incredibly hardworking, determined public school teachers who are fighting tooth and nail against like, you know, the school boards to be able to teach material like Michelle Alexander's books and Angela Davis's books and the very incredible history of our area. I mean, the Black Panthers were born in Oakland. There are many teachers who who are, are you know, very cognizant about the necessary nature of teaching kids this history and placing the current struggle in the context of that history. But it's going to take a lot more funding of public education. It's going to take giving... Where's the money going to come from? That's right. We can't... Who's going to pay for it? So we will do... We'll get yeah. into this maybe next episode. We'll get a little bit into this defunding. Right. Defunding this, versus one of the abolition. One that was yeah. unexpectedly put on the table is this defunding of the police in a way that I think yeah, necessary was, definitely is, necessary but definitely not sufficient right right well um, another world is possible <laughs> can we just before we end the episode talk about Trump <laughs> hiding in a bunker because that is I think one of the things that is the most important oh, so well, good. I just think this. that like it's all so classic yes. right like everything that he does is so perfect and so 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 him yeah. like even the the whole the military that he deployed deploying these funny little green men right like you're gonna deploy the military to show how tough you are but you're too cowardly to admit that you deployed the military it's, and you're gonna <laughs> you know you're gonna tweet your twitter warrior that you that you are you're gonna tweet that you're the shooting's gonna start and then when the protesters come to the white house you hide in a bunker I, mean, just... I think he was actually tweeting those, like those racist from the tropes right. from yeah. his bunker. Yeah. Like it's like you can't. Right. The Onion yeah. couldn't yeah. do it better. Actually, shout out to the Onion. They've done a really great <laughs> job in the last couple good. of weeks. They've shown up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a little levity to break the and horror. The world yeah. has provided them with lots of material. Yeah. Okay, we yes. will stay on this topic here at the brief. So keep thanks, following. guys. Stay strong. Stay safe too. It's the still there. It's still on. Even despite, if you're bored of it. Yeah. <laughs> despite what people would have you believe. And I was there for a tiny little short period of time, and it was much more for an inspection. There was no problem during the day. And I go down, I've gone down uh, two or three times, all for inspection. And you go there, someday you may need it. And I've been down, uh, let's see, that would be number two, two and a half, sort of, because I've done different things, but two and a half. But uh, 
I looked, I was down for a very, very short period of time. That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod.